Okay, uh, this is the uh, weekly recap. This is a new podcast from Howl for Wildlife, kind of to show uh, what's the what's going on right now. What's the pack mentality? What do people need to know? What did they miss? What's upcoming? And today we have a pretty loaded podcast with basically some of my main contacts for who have helped us develop a lot of the recent actions. Uh, so. I'm going to start with Mark Hall. Go ahead and introduce yourself, Mark. Hey, uh, Mark Hall, host of the Hunter Conservationist podcast up in Canada. I'm based in British Columbia. And the Hunter Conservationist podcast is a show about wildlife science, conservation, and responsible hunting in Canada. So we were working on the C21 gun control legislation and amendments earlier this month or last month. Awesome. Uh, next, John Colazar. Okay, John Colazar from Phoenix, Arizona. Um, basically what I've been working on for almost 16 years now is feral horses. Um, we have issues with vast numbers of horses and a little backdrop, I contacted Charles last spring regarding the issues that we were facing at that time, um, politicians by their very breed, who they are, respond to inquiries or comments or pressure. And he was kind enough to beat the drums. And we had, I think over a thousand people who commented to our federal legislators, both in the Senate and in the house. And when that first, first we had to do it to forest service. Then after that, we had to do it to the federal legislators. Um, and then recently, one of our state senators submitted a bill, which was SB 1057, in which they are going to try and turn the Apache National Forest into the similar feedlot that we have going on with our Salt River Recreation Area. And basically what it was, was a, um, a tool for the person who manages the Salt River area and they're claiming there's only 200 horses left, blah, blah, blah. Well, we contacted Charles, and so far I think we had over 800 responses that went to our Senator Kavanaugh, and he's a former New York cop, uh, doesn't know anything about wildlife, but the uh, HSUS loves him because he does everything he possibly can to save all God's little creatures. At any rate, after all the comments yesterday, um, the Arizona Game and Fish Department's legislative liaison contacted him as he was coming out of a bathroom of all places and inquired as to where he stood because as of the current status, there were four no votes on a seven member commission. And he indicated at that time, the bill was not going to be heard. There was way too much opposition. He had gotten way too many emails. Um, will that last? I'm not sure. I don't think the hunter, the horse advocates are aware of the moment that the bill's not going anywhere. They will lose their collective minds when that does occur, but we're prepped and ready if anything more happens. But if it hadn't been for Powell over the past eight months, uh, we would have been dead in the water or worse. They would have not been allowed to take horses off the forest. So thank you. I, I did not pay him to say that. Um, <laughs> next is uh, Amy Patrick. I'm Amy Patrick. I'm the policy director for the Oregon Hunters Association and the current chair of the Oregon Sportsman's Conservation Partnership. 
and out here in Oregon, we are attempting to run a right to fish, hunt, harvest, and gather bill. Uh, that's been our most recent uh, work with Howell. Um, had a great, a great response last week when we had our first public hearing on the bill. So really happy to be involved and, and see the response of the, the sportsmen through the use of Howell's website. Um, Jeff, Dara, we, we actually kind of have, well, just introduce yourself. We'll, we'll get into the, the issue, I guess, or whatever, but we have uh, two recent actions that, that kind of involve you. I'm Jeff Dara. I'm the executive director of Montana Sportsmen for Fish and Wildlife. I'm the vice president of the Outdoor Heritage Coalition here in Montana. Everett, um, which one of these actions, go ahead and introduce yourself and then let us know which one of these actions you helped with because I can't remember. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My name is Everett Headley. Uh, I am uh, I'm an outdoor writer, educator, consultant, Wear a lot of different hats. I have my platform called Elevate the Hunt and do a lot of writing for Howl. And I think recently I worked on Montana's right to hunt, uh, Utah's right to hunt, and um, Colorado's uh, wolf management plan. So those are the, the latest three actions that I've been helping out on. And proud Oregon's, of Oregon's right to hunt. Oh, what did I say? Did Utah? Did Utah have? Yeah, if Utah doesn't have one, I'll write that yeah. one too. Yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> and then, um, John, can we hear you yet? Stallone, cannot hear you. You got to plug straight into the computer. We can't hear John. We'll get back to him. Um, let me give kind of my, my recap uh, that doesn't include what we're going to talk about with with these ladies and gentlemen uh so this past weekend john stallone and i we were in utah speaking of utah at the hunt expo it was a great experience got to meet a lot of people it was really humbling and motivating to see all of the different organizations companies i should say um and individuals who were there supporting how in their own booths. So in addition to, you know, what they were advertising hunts or gear or whatever, they had howl literature there from, you know, a seven foot sign, kind of like that thing behind me um, to like an eight by 11 with QR codes and our cards. And there was even a couple of raffles going on where the proceeds went to howl. Um, it was just really cool to be a part of that. It was I'd been there. I'd been there last year for a half a day. I was just in between travel. And um, so, but this was sort of my first full experience where I got to spend two full days there. Hopefully next year we have a booth there. I think it's going to do, it'll do very well. And, and also, um, you know, it was the first time I got to see this whole auction thing where <laughs> hunts are auctioned off at insane amounts and the one specifically there was there was many but the one specifically was for a mule deer tag basically kind of a governor's tag you can basically hunt wherever you want in arizona and that one went for seven hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars, and that was interesting and what was really interesting to me were some of the negative comments that i saw on that because I 
unfortunately, I don't think enough people, enough hunters to start with know what that means. They were kind of making comments like, oh, this is just a rich man's game or, you know, this, this the tags are all going to the rich. I'm like, hold on a second. That's not what this was. This was, yeah, a rich guy, I'm assuming, because $725,000 bought one tag, one mule deer tag. And yes, he gets to go to Arizona and probably have a bunch of guides and all that. I don't know. But 100% of that money goes to conservation efforts for mule deer in Arizona. And what I'm going to do, I'm actually working with, with John Colazar and a few others, actually, they're getting the specifics on where that money goes. So instead of just saying this goes to conservation, we're going to show some very detailed examples through video and through pictures and documentation. Um, because Obviously, it's very important for everybody to know because everybody doesn't know how this works. And then I think more importantly, once we can educate a lot of people on the hunting side, hunters, this is fantastic information to be used to educate the non-hunting public. So when we say hunting is conservation, we can give these concrete examples. And this is just one example. but. Um, that might be my biggest takeaway is, is um, being able to sort of develop this story from what happened at, at, at Hunt Expo. And one thing that was really cool, the, the auctioneer, I don't know his name, Baird, something, Bear or something. It's John Bear. John Bear. He reached yeah. out to me the day and he said, hey, I love what you're doing. Let us know if we can help in any way, shape or form. And I was going to comment back, yeah, get us a booth next year. <laughs> can, you get us, can you get us off the waiting list? Um, but anyway, just, uh, fantastic to see the amount of support, um, come from people that were there at that, at that expo. John Stallone, can you, can you talk yet? I don't know. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay. So I think you just missed everything. I just went over the hunt expo and how incredible it was. The amount of support, the, the booths and the companies that supported us, the people that we met. We did some podcasts, uh, a lot of networking, a lot of things coming down the pipe. But I was, uh, I was speaking on the all the money that went um, specifically to Arizona for that seven hundred twenty-five thousand dollar tag, Crazy. and how you know there's hunters that were upset because they didn't understand this. They were looking at it completely wrong. Um, so I was just kind of talking about that, and I also I saw Mike, Mike, you're here now too. I saw you engaging in that conversation online which i always appreciate and um you were i think writing some writing some wrongs as well do you guys have any quick comments on on that real quick just that whole basically what i i, I don't know if you guys know this yet but i've reached out to john colazar and a few other individuals they're going to give me um concrete ex detailed examples of exactly where this money has been used in the past and we're going to show that through video and documents and pictures so people can can literally see where that money goes. Um, you guys have any comments on the John on the Hunt Expo or? Well, know. yeah, the Hunt Expo, um, it, it probably like you already said, was uh, it's fantastic to see that many people getting together uh, for a, a single cause. It is, um, but what's even more interesting to me is 
the power, what I see is the power that lies there within there. Because if all those people that were there would take a small percentage of their time and invest it in, let's say what we're doing, okay? I'm gonna be, <laughs> be quite frank. Um, you know, if all those people that were there were doing, were having their howls heard um, and not even putting all that money, but putting a, a portion of that money in, and worth, put their put their money in their mouth, uh, where I think would be we'd be doing so much better off as a whole as as hunters. But it, it's and I and I'm not doing I'm not saying that to put people down in any way. I'm just it's a realization. Like we have that many people, we have that power, we have that voice. It's not to say, hey, you need to do you need to do this or you're not doing this. Whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big opportunity for us. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not presenting as well as I'd like to, but what I'm trying to get, I, I know what you're getting at. <laughs> we, have a big, we have a big, a big voice, uh, meaning the hunting community has a big voice and we do, we get, we've proven, we've shown that we can come up because we just came up with $725,000 for one tag that is going to the state of Arizona, which is awesome. Cause that's what governor tags do. They cannot be used legally for anything else. Um, but that's just a, it's just a proving point of how powerful we as hunters could be to move the needle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you, Mike, you got anything on that and then I'm going to get to the, uh, I'm going to get to everybody here and, and, uh, kind of get the updates on what's happening. Yeah, I think, I think, um, I think to John's point, there's a lot of potential there and I think it's just not realized yet because asking for advocacy or asking for support for this type of advocacy just hasn't been on the table yet. And I think the fact that you guys were walking around and people recognize you and engage you and pulled you aside and said, Hey, out of boys and, you know, well done and keep going, uh, you know, a year after formation, um, is really meaningful. So I think it's just strategically, we need to look at, I've, you know, I've got on my calendar, I'll probably go to the expo for the first time next year. Um, you know, we just strategically have to start looking at next year. How does, how does Howell be involved at a deeper, more thorough level, but not just so how can be involved, but how can we do it in a way that creates resources and new bandwidth to help get the, the advocacy work and the voices out there and the non-hunter sentiment manipulation or, or you know or or adjustment efforts going i think i think it's all potential it's just unrealized and it's you know the the we the people here and the people that are participating right now are 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 going to be able to help bring that to reality um yeah but boy you know the the governor's tags and the you know the auction tags just bring out like jealousy is a bad look. Like, like it just doesn't wear well on anybody. And, um, and it's so easy. And we have to, I think we have to think about this and, and maybe this is where we cut people slack is humans are so quick to like assume something about an issue as opposed to asking the questions about the issue. Oh, this is just, this is just going to cause something to happen. It's like, as opposed to saying, I want to know where this, where this money goes. Like, cause you can go find it. Like you can go look to at Arizona's 
you know, you go to Arizona Game of Fish and you with about three clicks, you can find millions of dollars of, of habitat work, wa flying water in to, you know, to, to catchments and stuff like that. You can find the work, like you can see what it's doing. So I think that's where we and, and somebody actually pinged me and said, hey, this would be a good podcast idea. And, and it is. I need to do it for California. Like, what does the California Big Game Management account do? Um, people just assume their tags are going to, you know, bureaucrats to keep bureaucrats busy. And and maybe it does to a degree, but there's also a lot of money that goes to to habitat work. And so I think it'd be that'd be a really good thing to dive into is is help the help those people that are quick to assume the worst get the information in front of them to where they can say, oh, okay something's happening here that does benefit wildlife. And if it benefits wildlife and habitat, then it benefits every hunter, whether they've got, you know, whether they're, you know, guided paying 50 grand for a guide or, you know, paying 50 bucks for a DIY tag, it helps every hunter. So that's just some work that we need to do and, and get that, get that education out there. Yep. Right on. Does anybody is anybody short on time? Cause I want you to go first. So, um, as far as, you know, the issues, uh, Oregon, Montana, Arizona, Canada, is anybody short on time right now? I mean, I'm going to try and keep it pretty short, got but five fifteen cut off. I've got a, I've got another zoom meeting after this for our, our banquet. So, um, let's have you go first. You kind of, you kind of went over it, but, um, we have a, a problem with feral horses, and I think it's important to make the distinction between a wild horse and a feral horse in this in this situation. Um, explain again what exactly is going on with uh, with the issue of feral horses that that we were just involved in there. Well, part of it was, in you know, obviously they passed the Wild Horse and Barrow Act in 1971, and in 1973, Arizona was tasked, their national forests were tasked with finding where horses were. Um, they found in one forest, they found seven horses, which was the sick greaves. And then they searched the Apache and they found none. Um, they commonly call it the Apache sick greaves national forest. It's two national forests. Because there were no horses there at the, in, in, uh, at the beginning of the wild horse territories, there, there was nothing that could make them wild. Um, We've had two major fires in Arizona over the last 20 years. One was the Rodeo Chetaskai fire and the other was the Wallow fire. In each instance, the fence lines were burned down between the uh, Sitgreaves and the Alpine Forest and the White Mountain Apache tribal lands. White Mountain Apache tribes have scum, I'm just hundreds of horses. And of course, when they did seedings, they came over to this new lush area and you could not repair fences for five years because the they didn't cut any of the standing timber down and it took that long for them to fall based on winds and winters and everything else once they repaired them you know pandora's box was already open we had a few hundred horses they attempted to gather them and to get rid of them and they were forced to go to court and federal court said you need to come up with a management plan because this is a wild horse territory all across our state now, we are finding instances where there are horses coming over from tribal lands. And because of fencing issues and because of the tribal recognition that they don't want them, um, they have done nothing with them. And so consequently, what we're doing is, is 
if they came out of the Apache forest, they're feral livestock. Federal judge determined that in July. Um, if they come out of the Heber area, then they're wild horses. The numbers are going to be reduced sometime this year uh, from probably 1,800 in one unit that we have hunting 3A, 3C. They're going to try and reduce it down to 100, 100 horses. Uh, it's going to be a, a yeoman's task. But the advocates do not want to see a single horse removed, and they don't want to see a single horse killed. And that's just not a real reality of life. It's going to happen out there. Uh, but the information is out there now that these horses are being rounded up. I know the contractor. I know the forest supervisor extremely well, Judy Palmer. She and I talk at least once a week. And it's been a really cooperative effort from all the way from Albuquerque, which is their regional headquarters, down to the Forest Service. They contact me all the time and ask for write-ups or any of that. And we finally have some communication between the cattle growers, sportsmen, and the public at large. But it's nowhere near. And to speak to the point that was already addressed, we have thousands, hundreds of thousands of hunters. And the advocacy effort that they've put out in the past has been minimal because it's always been viewed as too hard. Um, Howell creates an opportunity for them to take an action and to do it in less than a minute of their time, which makes it a tool that every state should be able to use for issues that are critical to them. And right now where we're at is we're removing feral livestock and pinpointing where we can remove wild horses. The wild horses that we remove get to go to what I call the horse hotels that they have all across the West, where they live their life in a sanctuary, so to speak, federal government pays the tab, and this year's budget is $153 million just to run those hotels and BLM lands. And the big, big thing that everybody needs to know, BLM uses the stat of 85,000 horses in the West. It's a flat out lie because there's over 300,000 that are in the West. They are not including tribal lands, they're not including state trust lands, they're not including national forests or private lands. And those are huge issues. I consider it the number one issue along with water that we're facing here in the West. Habitats Thanks. just being <laughs> completely destroyed. Um, and there's even species that are in recovery, isn't there? Isn't there a, yeah. a trout, right? Yeah, the the, yeah. the Gila trout is being recovered in some of the streams that they, that's one of the reasons where I, you know, in talking with Robin Silver, he had two two issues. One was the Gila trout, but for him, most important to him was the New Mexico metal jumping mouse. And that's that basis won us the case in court, as it was explained to the federal judge. Robin Silver is in lockstep with us on this issue. If you go to wolves in Colorado, I want to strangle. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. You and I have a love-hate relationship, and it's wonderful to sometimes, and it's just mind-blowing on others. But he's a passionate individual, and never discount that. And they do not have the tool that we now have. So thank you for that. Yeah, Robin Silver with the Center for Biological Diversity. Yeah, we're usually at odds with each other. On this one, uh, he, we are not. He, he recognizes, and I could say the CBD recognizes, I, I think, um, they recognize the habitat that's being destroyed by essentially this apex animal. There's nothing out there that's threatening uh, these feral horses whatsoever. So our latest action, that was up pretty quick. It went to the author of a bill that was going to be a bill to pro essentially protect these horses. Um, he mentioned earlier that Senator Kavanaugh has stated there's too much opposition. The bill's probably going to die. If it doesn't, We'll bring it right back. We're ready. I, I was actually, 
you just you called me, I think, or texted me, and I was on the computer adding in the other decision makers that we needed this to go to because we were going to expand it, and then it died, sort of, for now. Oh, so, yeah. thank you. That's, that's great. <laughs> that's awesome. You, you thank could, you. You could feed a million people for a year with that many. Oh, you have uh, no idea how how much I want to try that. <laughs> oh my gosh. I got some, I got some good recipes. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, people would line up. I I'm sure people would be some people wouldn't. Most people wouldn't. But but no. wow. Yeah. It's it's pretty astounding. Um I really like that. You know, I like engaging on that um feral horse issue because I don't see it much and it was I learned a lot. I learn a lot every single time I talk to John. Uh, you're just a, a, a wealth of knowledge, and I, I really appreciate. I really What's, appreciate you. I have a question. What's the difference between a feral horse and a wild horse? Is it is it when it was released? Is it <laughs> no. a, a wild horse was released onto the open range 200 years ago? Feral horses just escaped recently. No. What happens is is that uh, it goes by geography. Okay. If, a, if there is a declared territory for wild horses in the BLM in the in the federal legislation in 1973, they documented wild horse territories. If a horse shows up in a wild horse territory, it's a wild horse. Because there were no horses in the Apache National okay. when they started showing up from the uh, after the fire, they were they were accused of being feral livestock. And that was what the litigation determined last summer in federal court. They tried to save them as wild horses. And it turns out the judge even said they're feral livestock. So they can't be removed. It all depends on where they are. And yeah. if it's in a wild horse territory, they're wild. If it's not, they're feral livestock. So but I even then, wild horses in wild horse territories are significantly overpopulated oh. based on based on management targets and standards. Um, here's the key. Wild horse territory management plans have been um, rejected numerous times. Uh, there are several great movies out or videos, however you want to phrase it. Mm -hmm. Rich horse, per, uh, horse rich dirt poor is mm -hmm. one that was phenomenally well done and shows the the damage that they do to the ecosystem. Um, we, I guess, a, a little backdrop on me. I've been president of the Arizona Big Game Super Raffle for a number of years now. We've been in existence 17 years. And we have raised over $10 million now that we have given to the Game of Fish Department. And we sit at the table and see where all that money goes. It all goes for habitat per species based on what people buy in our raffle. Right on. Oh, looks, did we lose Charles? Oh, no, he just dropped to the bottom. Uh, I, I, got a I did have a question for you, John. Sure. So, what about the specifically the horses that are at salt river mm -hmm. none of those are considered wild horses right those are all feral horses that was a really unique issue that came up in 2015 they wanted the tonto wanted to remove them mm -hmm. and there was a huge public outcry with no countering outcry it yeah. went all the way to washington dc and it came down to neil bosworth who was forest supervisor at that time don't round them up as he's as he determined and i've talked to neil countless times and we spent some time there this last spring looking at the devastation that's out there you cannot find any other animal other than horses and there is no there's no habitat they determined there could probably be 12 to 15 cows if it were a 
pasturing and if that was a permittee. And there's over 400 horses that are occupying 19,000 acres. I mean, it, it is devastating. It's a big feedlot. And they have to bring in alfalfa weekly truckloads to feed the horses. Uh, most of the public doesn't know that. They see them in the waterways when they're paddling down the Salt River in their kayaks, and they think it's wonderful and it's beautiful, but they have no idea how much devastation this is caused. Well, I, I have some firsthand experience. Actually, my dad goes down there and photographs them quite often. And uh, I know. They, they're beautiful. <laughs> They, 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 so, uh, well, they are, they're beautiful. I'm going to, yeah. but uh, even having this conversation with my dad, who is a hunter, um, you know, to explain to him the damage that they do and so on and so forth. Cause I got into a little thing with him the other day. Cause he asked me to help him post something on Instagram. He wanted me to help him post a reel. And I put feral horses. He's like, you better change that to wild horses. Those people down there are going to kill me if they see that. Cause all his photography friends, they're like, these are wild. These are wild. And yeah, and I'm like, no, dad, these are feral horses. You don't understand. And I said, you know, the sheep that you like to go video with, they're not going to have anything. The only reason why there's still sheep there is because those horses can't get up those cliffs. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And by the way, there's and a you know, you're nice to come hunting here. There's no more deer. Can no, you, you can't hunt there anymore. They are You're not in the will them. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Here's your inheritance, son. <laughs> the shape of a donut. I think my barber, so I don't really have a whole lot of inheritance to worry about. <laughs> uh, well, um, huge thank you to John, and huge thank you to everyone who who uh, got involved in that. And there will be more. This isn't this isn't going away. Uh, and I think somebody just sent me something about Colorado and Wyoming and how they deal with wild horses and the differences too i need to look into that i don't know if there's an action there or whatever but um interesting subject interesting subject um let's talk about oregon real quick before we jump to Oregon, yeah just want to add it i think what's even more of a problem and john i don't know you could add to this or not is the burrows yep because I've seen a couple of units now that have gone like 20B, for instance, used to be a fantastic deer hunting. It's still the habitat looks pretty good to me, uh, but they've completely pushed deer out with their aggressiveness. Well, they hoard water, which is the biggest. Key. I've been charged at water holes in the past, and particularly the dirt tanks that you know most of the wildlife tends to go to. Um, it, when you find a stud who's got a harem, and they're sitting on a dirt tank, they will charge you to drive you off. I've watched drive off every animal that, even turkeys hmm. and squirrels, for no other reason, They it's just simply innate in their nature. They are hoarders. Burrows, if they can break down a fence, um, they lost 5,000 gallons out of a tank uh, on the west side by the white tanks. Burrows broke down the fence, and within one week, they had gone through 5,000 gallons of water. Jeez. That's how devastating burrows are. They bulge out. I mean, they'll just drink till they're, they can't move hardly. That's but yes, it, you wait over the next 20 years, if they don't do something dramatic, you're going to find all across the West horse issues. Thankfully, Wyoming came up with the idea for a slaughterhouse and they're getting pummeled for it. They were putting that into some form of legislation. I saw it. If I can find, I'll send it to you guys. That's what this is. That's what I was referring to earlier. Yeah, it was something about uh, slaughtering or I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't 
I haven't read it all, but that's basically what that was. Yeah, they want to export the meat to countries that will consume it as food. And yeah. quite frankly, the biggest issue I have is all the zoos in the United States know that they can't feed their big cats, cattle, beef, because it's mm -hmm. bad for the digestive system. They reject it. So what do we do? All of the zoos in the United States have to contact Canada. Canada then sends down horse meat. They're called zoo logs. They send down the horse meat that they have, and we pay an outrageous amount because we can't kill a horse in the United States. Can we export them to Canada? Um, I know that there are some tribes up in the Northwest that do that, and that's it's a source of money, and they're getting pummeled by the horse advocates now, but it happens. Or, or you can drive them south to Mexico where you get 30 cents a pound live weight. Not that I've ever done that, but I know people who have. Send them to Canada. Well, I was going to propose that as a solution because here, I'll just quickly go over this story for you. This was in our national news posted yesterday, February 6th. So I was actually today years old when I figured this out. Here's the headline. Canada isn't doing enough to protect horses flown to Japan for slaughter, advocates say. So we flown export live horses to Japan then they process them over there. So on airplanes. Yes. Yep. It's fresh sushi. That's the best way to eat it. So they're exporting them via via airplane. So if you we we could just get a convoy. So send them up to here because apparently we don't have a problem sending them over there. So there you go. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. Let's get in contact. Just send them to my place. We'll just look, I'll look after them and then you know take <laughs> them the out wolves. to the airport. Take them out to the airport. Let the wolves have them. <laughs> Save some caribou. Bring them to Colorado for the new 250 wolves. <laughs> those wolves might have a eh, horses are those those horses are pretty tough. Yeah. But, uh, okay, Oregon. Amy, Patrick. Oregon, the cautionary tale of of the nation, uh, basically. So, yeah, we're um. We're trying in Oregon to run a resolution, House Joint Resolution 5, um, to get a constitutional protection uh, to fish, hunt, harvest, and gather, uh, sent to the 2024 ballot for the citizens of the state to vote on. Uh, so a huge undertaking if you know anything about Oregon's legislative landscape. Um, we no longer have a supermajority uh, on the Democrat side, uh, but it by like one seat in each chamber. So. Uh, very barely can, can we say that we don't have a supermajority anymore. So the landscape is such that it's a um, it's an undertaking. It's a it's a big undertaking. We were caught off guard a little bit last week on Monday. Uh, I got the call that um, our our bill was going to be heard in a public hearing on Thursday, um, and so uh, Charles was one of the first people that I called, and and we started uh, rallying the troops to try to get some support because as of right now. Um, it's a partisan bill. I've not been successful in getting some Democrats to sponsor. So we have very responsive uh, group of, of Republican legislators who have sponsored the bill. Uh, but we knew we needed a pretty strong outpouring of support from the community, uh, given that. Um, and it's in the uh, House Rules uh, Committee. So it's not in a, a committee that's dealing with ag or natural resources. Um, so yeah, we, we got a, um, call it to action up, I think Tuesday morning, um, and literally within 24 hours, uh, we were seeing, you know, well over a thousand, 1200, um, 
actions taken and every one of those actions was uh, seven emails to each of the members of the committee. Uh, so huge response there. We had great response from our, our uh, conservation partnership organizations. Uh, OHA, we did a, a call to action for our members. BHA sent out a call to action. We had a, a really robust amount of written testimony submitted, which we have not seen this in Oregon, just, just as some background here. Um, the Oregon Sportsman's Conservation Partnership is a new partnership. It's just over a year old. Uh, and it was brought about mainly because of IP3. And we'll touch on that in just a second here, because that's good background as well. Um, but IP3 is this initiative petition we have in the state um, that would seek to criminalize all legal hunting, fishing, trapping, wildlife management. It goes hard after animal ag, um, trying to classify breeding uh, activities as sexual assault. It's a very um, it's driven by what I refer to as a militantly vegan agenda um, out of Portland. Um, and so it is a very real um, thing that we've been dealing with in Oregon for the last year and a half, two years. And they're also aiming for the 2024 ballot. Um, so we, this, that um, communication around how to fight that is what brought us to the creation of this partnership. So this is the first legislative session that we've had a, this partnership in, in place and um, Howl for Wildlife is part of that partnership. And so seeing the, the mobilization um, that we were able to get out of all these organizations that at times seem to operate in, you know, individually in silos, um, but really being able to share information, mobilize our, our individual yeah. efforts and really um, raise the level of the voice of the sportsman uh, in Oregon. I think this was a great example of what this partnership can do. Um, so we were really pleased with the outcome. We had a, a couple of the members of the committee um, talk to our, our lead sponsor on the bill and ask them, uh, what engine did you, you know, did you put in place for this? Because they, they were shocked at the amount of um, emails they were getting, the support. Uh, we had a good turnout for verbal testimony, both uh, in, in the room and by remote testimony. So really a really strong showing for us. Um, so really pleased with that. The next step for that bill is that we need to get scheduled for a work session before the cutoff date of March 17th. So we're going to be working the committee members uh, pretty hard, trying to make sure that we get a, a work session and keep this, this effort alive. Um, just as a side note, the, the IP3 people are tracking what we're doing. Um, we've been watching them quite a bit. I have spent more hours of my life on, on following these people than I would care to admit. Um, so I watch their social media and their Secretary of State financials. Um, I hadn't looked at it for probably a week or two. And uh, I signed up for their email alerts with my personal email. So I woke up Saturday morning to an email from them that said, hey, we're hiring paid signature gatherers. And I went, wait a minute, they had $2,000 in their account. Like the last time I looked, there's no way they could be doing this. So, you know, check their finances. Lo and behold, they got a $50,000 donation the same day as HJR 5s uh, uh, hearing from a uh, animal activist, and uh, I think his his uh, social media bio uh, calls it, he calls himself a raw fruitarian, which is just too good not to mention. So, uh, and a and a cryptocurrency guy. So uh, he has waded into the fray, donated fifty thousand dollars to them, uh, and they are now hiring um, signature gatherers. Also, um, 
I learned that we struck a chord, I think, with our testimony. They posted my testimony on HDR5 to their social media, to their Twitter and their Instagram. Um, And at first I was a little bit taken aback by that, a little bit um, annoyed. And now I just consider it a compliment because um, clearly what I had to say struck a nerve um, and I'm okay with that. So we're just going to use the efforts that they're putting together to highlight for legislators um, exactly why we need this in Oregon. Uh, It's a very real threat. They really have uh, some serious financial backing now, and they they really are going to go after the 2024 ballot. And people can say that it's too crazy um, to to make the ballot. Uh, People can say it's too crazy to pass, but we're in Oregon and we legalized drugs in Oregon uh, a few years ago, like possession of drugs. So I never thought you'd be able to walk around with drugs in your pocket and not get arrested. Yet here we are in Oregon. So um, pretty much we don't take anything for granted out here. It it could definitely pass. So our goal is to get HDR5 um, as a referendum to the 2024 ballot so that it will be oppositional to IP3 if it makes the ballot. Uh, Amy, real quick question. I've got to leave, but I've been fascinated by this. Uh, My son lives in Portland. And so he and I have some discourse about this. Uh, but so you're going to basically, if it works out, you would have competing ballot measures, one giving you the constitutional right to hunt and fish and the other criminalizing it. What do exactly. you do both pass? Uh, that is a really good question. Um, <laughs> if both pass, actually, we would win because uh, ours would be a constitutional uh, protection for those activities. Um, so it's, it's like the ultimate game of rock, paper, scissors, I think. Um, but we, we have the winning edge on our side with, with that. If, if the, your measure passes in port in, in Oregon, I know we in Arizona tried it 11 years ago and it was narrowly defeated. Um, I'd be fascinated because yours, instead of saying the right to hunt and fish, it's the right to gather food as well. And that's more all encompassing and it's more holistic. And I love the way you're doing this. So congrats on it. Well played out. I just hope it, I hope it keeps going. Guys, thank you very much. Appreciate it. I got another one. Yep. Talk to you soon, John. Take care. Uh, Yeah. Right to food. And that is a huge, that's very important. And I think, you know, this, when this came up last week, we had basically a night to get this done the action and and everett and i uh, went to work on that after we spoke with amy so we could at least get it up by tuesday because thursday was the meeting um but i hope hopefully we have more time on what's going to be next but it's going to be really important for a variety of reasons to get more than just hunters involved because it is a right to forage and a right to gather and a right to food. And, and it would also, that would also kind of be, you know, going against what a lot of the, the people who showed up that were against this bill, they said, this is all just hunters showing up and you can tell they're all from these organizations and blah, 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 blah. Well, we really need to, to reach out and get other people involved with different stories as well, which I think will be a, a huge success there uh, to have that representation. And for me, I love this and it's obvious, I, I think, but if you get something like this in the constitution in Oregon, this, that means it's great for everybody involved, all everybody who's hunting or gathering, you know, uh, foraging, but it also makes it so much harder for the anti-hunters 
to get a foothold in anything. They're going to have to spend way more resources, way more money, way more people. It's just, it's building up, I think, a foundation, which is what we need um, across the board. But I absolutely love this. Yeah, you. I think you texted me. You said, hey, they posted my uh, testimony on Twitter. And I wasn't <laughs> sure. I was like, I wonder how she feels about this. I mean, yeah, that can be scary. <laughs> that can be scary if somebody starts, um, you know, kind of, making you public, I guess. And, um, and we talked about it, but I also, I ran into James Nash at the, the, the hunt expo and, and he brought it up. I said, you know, what's funny is any rational person who looks at this and sees what they're saying, and then sees what you said in your wonderful testimony is going to side with you. So they kind of did you a favor I mean, yeah, I found it interesting. You know. The the soundbite they chose to use was um, they, they made sure and got the beginning of my testimony where I identified myself and, you know, what my position was and who I worked for. And then they cut to the last minute of my testimony, which was basically acknowledging that this initiative petition is out there. And then talking about the fact that I hunted for the first time this fall and had a successful hunt and brought that animal home, processed it myself in my own kitchen um, and how that experience really showed me what it was to be like the only link in your food chain. Um, and they chose that to be what they highlighted and their, you know, their comment is it's like a billboard for hunting. Right. And their comment was like, <laughs> you can never really be your own, the, the single link in your, in your food chain. And, you know, violence towards animals is not, not the way. And, and, and I, I felt like my initial response was I was very angry uh, about it because I, I wanted to be like, really come down and look at my garden and my, my shelves of, you know, canned produce and, you know, all this and tell me that I can't be the only link in my food chain. This is just another way with hunting, you know, to, to do that. Um, but then I went out to, to my gym and I, I threw things around for a couple hours and then I came back in and felt better about it and realized it was actually kind of a, a, um, a compliment that they chose to, to post that because I think Charles, you're right. Anybody that listens to that, if you can't see the beauty in that statement, um, then, you know, then you're probably not going to see any, any of our argument. Hunting is human. Yeah. Right, Mike? Yeah. I have, I have two questions. Um, when they're doing their canvassing and trying to get signatures, how do they represent their thing in a way that it's palatable to the middle 80%, the people that aren't raw, because people are signing on to something that that will put them in that will completely change their lives. Like it'll completely upset the food systems in in Oregon. And so, how do they get those signatures if they're actually getting other humans to sign? And then, secondly, in the political realm, what sway does this like really extreme fringe vegan group have with even the even the the, the classic, you know? liberal democrat political people like how do they get a foothold with those folks so to your first question the way that they're marketing or, or putting forward the, the petition and they've posted this all online so i've just watched their social media seeing how they're representing themselves they've posted pictures of when they're gathering signatures and their sandwich boards and signage just says and end animal cruelty <laughs> so that's how they're billing it um, and I listened to, an interview we would all the, sign up for that. Right. I mean, you know, that's and all so it was. They legally have to present the, the ballot language. 
um, to somebody. It's on, got to be on top of the signature. So somebody has to at least look at it when they lift it up to sign. Um, yeah. But the proponent has said, if they don't read it, we don't discuss it. No. And if they don't ask us, we are not telling them that this criminalizes killing all animals in Oregon, um, you know, for anything other than they have a, a small caveat in there for self-defense. Um, but basically that it creates a sanctuary state um, in Oregon. And so they're, they really are trying to bill it as ending animal cruelty. Um, and that's, that's how all their signage is. So that's how they've been successful thus far in, in the signatures that they've gathered. Now, I will say the somewhat silver lining to the fact that they have enough money to do paid signature gatherers is that now they have to report. Um, so now we will see how many signatures that their paid guys at least are gathering. Whereas with the volunteer signature gatherers, they don't have to report anything to Secretary of State. So we never knew where they were at signature wise. So there is a little bit of a, at least we'll know kind of where they're at. Um, to your second point, they don't have, I don't think much of a foothold with the legislators. Um, when I've talked to our Democrat legislators that I was trying to get to support the bill, they think it's so far-fetched. They don't, they don't think it's a, an issue. And so they haven't seen the need for the bill. As so they just don't the, see it like getting enough traction to, yeah, to they're do, like, oh, to that'll do anything. Never happen. You guys are overreacting. That'll never happen. And they don't see why we're concerned enough to bring this forward. Um, which again, silver lining, now that these guys are kind of ramping up, it makes it more real. Um, and I think it's a right. little easier when I have the, the conversations with the legislators now to be like, no, really, like this is a thing that's happening. And by the way, they only have to get 112,020 signatures, 6% of, of Oregon voters uh, to get this on the ballot. And they've, right. they will have two years to get that number of signatures. So as a pessimist, I think that they have a pretty good shot of making the ballot. I think so too, honestly. Um, yeah. And I kind of worry about the fact that the Democratic legislators are downplaying it just to buy time. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's me wearing tinfoil hat, you know, but I mean, it, it, it seems to me like, hey, you go to somebody, oh no, it's okay, don't worry about it. You, you know, it's, it's fine. Don't, don't get excited about it is the, is the reaction that you would get from somebody who's not necessarily, not necessarily on your side because mm -hmm. they, don't want, they don't want you to be heated about it. They don't want you to dive down deeper or try harder to get it, you know, opposed. I mean, that's just the way I'm looking at it. But. Well, yeah. Amy, the route, the route that you've taken is to go through the legislators. Okay. Right. If they were to take that route, it would have never passed, right? No. Yeah, yeah their right. their okay. best option is the way that they're going, which is through the initiative petition process of gathering signatures. And right. so that's how they're they're attempting to make the ballot. It's very expensive and it's very time consuming. And so we chose to do the legislative route right. where we're seeking a, re a legislative referral to the ballot because yeah. we would have to we have to con to convince 90 people that way uh we need two-thirds actually in each of the house for it to, to go through right yeah got it well good job everybody on the first on the first round um we only had two days to to prepare for it and bha did a fantastic job too mm -hmm. and um i'll just say that no one else has to comment on this please um and i won't comment on what's What's uh, what's um, 
true or not, but I hear a lot of people talk crap about BHA all the time. And just from my point of view, when I'm involved in these issues at the state level, I always see BHA there and props to them. And I'll just leave it at that. Um, that's all I'm going to say on that. But anyway, they did a fantastic job on this. So, <laughs> but, but. <laughs> I know. You are absolutely right. Like plus one to what you said. They, yeah, they're front, I don't, front and center with leading, leading. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't want to get into it, but you know, because I, I truly feel the boots on the ground, BHA, uh, the it's, it's the um, local, the local chapters, state chapters. Yeah. Chapters and the national organization are two very different things. Like, honestly, that's just my, opinion. I feel like the, the guys who got in it that originally, if they, we say this or not, whatever, that they drank the Kool-Aid, they were getting into it for the right reasons. And those are still the guys that are in those state chapters. I don't know enough about it. Honestly, I just, I just hear a lot of crap talking and I go, here's my experience. They're always there on this state yeah. stuff. And I appreciate that. And then that's all I got. Honestly, that's all I got as experience. Um, but anyway. Um, I will say we have a solid crew in Oregon. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. of just, I've got probably four guys that I talk to at BHA State uh, for Oregon um, often. Um, and they're super, super responsive. They do get hum, ham, hamstrung by federal or national sometimes. But yeah. state guys are pretty cool. Right on. Yep. Smart guys there, too. Um, I think that's it for what's our next what are we looking at here is it may or april what what was the what was the next hearing on this what's the next date do we have for for, for hdr5 we need a work session to be scheduled by march 17. oh a work session. otherwise it dies scheduled. in committee yeah, yeah yeah okay okay and that's uh what do we have to do for that what do, what are you doing what how does that how does that work this is when we start interfacing um, just one-on-one -on -one with the, the members of the committee. So I have a meeting next week with the chair of the committee, um, trying to secure other meetings with the rest of them um, to make sure that we're shoring up the ones we know are, are supportive uh, and really reaching out to the ones that we're questionable on, um, whether or not they're going to support it. If we can um, make sure the chair knows how important this is to our community, then we have a really good shot of it getting scheduled for a work session. And that's what you do every day. Yep. Awesome. Thank you. Um, let's do another right to hunt. Everett and Jeff. Well, Jeff, go ahead, go ahead, Jeff and Everett. You, sure. you were involved sure. with this too. So both yeah. of you guys. What's well, happening? Montana is, uh, doing kind of the same thing. Um, we've tried it before. We do have an outdoor heritage statue right now. And, and a lot of people get, get really confused with that and think that that was our uh, right to hunt uh, bill or turn, turn into statute. And if you read it, it's the most milk toasty uh, possible uh, right to hunt language there could possibly be because the word right isn't even in it. So anyway, uh, Representative Paul Fielder is carrying House Bill 372, which is a constitutional right to hunt bill. And it would, would protect our current means and methods that we use now. So um, that means uh, whether you trap or you bow hunt or you uh, 
chase black bears with hounds or mountain lions with hounds, it would be be protected uh, unless it was overturned. Um, and we're tired of ballot box wars. So this is why we want to do it so that we don't have to do this. We know in 2024, there's going to be a ballot initiative again to ban public uh, lands trapping. Uh, we defeated it um, last time, but it's fairly obvious to us that they're going to do it again. So it's important to us to get this uh, passed. Uh, we had we have a supermajority of Republicans right now, so this is when you got to try to make it happen. Uh, the sponsor wanted to get 100 signatures or co-sponsors on the bill, which would be enough to, to basically say it's going to go through, but he got 97. Uh, still leaves, I think, five Republicans that wouldn't co-sponsor the bill, but they said they would vote for it. Uh, so the bill's been dropped into the hopper. Um, it hasn't been scheduled yet for a committee. So we're just watching it um, to see if it happens. I, I think we may even get a Democrat or two to, uh, to vote for it as well. Um, so that's kind of where we're at on that. Um, You'd think so in Montana. You should be able to get one. Yeah, you, you would think, but everybody watches Yellowstone and the river runs through it and they move here. Damn it. And they bring their politics <laughs> with them. So stay home. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, no, come bring your money, but leave your values behind, I guess. But uh, anyway, we're really hoping it passes. Um, you know, we're, we're involved with the wolf lawsuit right now with wildlife guardians and coyote projects. So there's no shortage of things to do in Montana. That's for sure. Um, yeah. And what you brought up was one, um, kind of misunderstanding and it was even a misunderstanding with a, with a, with a politician. I won't, I won't bring up his name, but he emailed me back and he's like, we already have a right to hunt here. I don't know what you're talking about. We already have this. I'm like, all right, well, that's not what this is. It adds trapping and it protects all current methods of take. Right. That's very different. So to explain that, you know, humane society could come in and they could just, for example, say, we want to ban bow hunting. Well, that right, correct me if I'm wrong, the current right or whatever it is, it's not a right, actually. You said that word isn't in there, but whatever you currently have wouldn't necessarily protect archery hunters because hunting would still exist exactly. in Montana. Exactly. So they could go after bow hunting. So this protects all current methods of take and it adds trapping. And there were a number of, of, of hunters that asked me that question as well. And I, I would forward it to you guys and say, Hi, what's the best way to answer this? And it turns out, those were talking points that were being sent in opposition, in opposition to this. Um, so people just got a hold of, you know, of talking points. And, you know, one guy even said, this is just Senator Fielder grandstanding, you know, uh, it doesn't even mean anything because we already have this right. And you, and you didn't. And these were hunters who thought that too. So communication, communication breakdown. And the other, the other thing, I mean, there were two main talking points that you would hear from, people that didn't want to take time to read the bill and, and what you just stated was number one talking point. You already have it. And, uh, 
the other talking point. Now I'm going to forget what it was. <laughs> Dang it. Uh, Are you thinking about FWP not being able to manage? Yes, her? that's it. Yes. The, 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 administratively, it would affect uh, our wildlife agency, state agency, from being able, for example, say you caught a poacher. And uh, since hunting was a right, the, the department may not be able to take away what we used to refer to as privileges. And uh, I sat right in the room with the director of Fish, Wildlife and Parks. And he said, no, that's not a problem. And the sponsor of the bill said, no, the department will still get to do all the regulatory and administrative things that they do. It, it, it's just a talking point for the people that just don't want to support it. Um, so. Uh, yeah, so we, if, if, if the population of, I don't know, mule deer somehow dipped to insanely low numbers and, and hunting wasn't, you know, basically the, they're still managing the wildlife in Montana and right. the hunting seasons are, are based on that. So they would still be able to do that. They'd still yeah. be able to manage. Yeah, it wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to just say it's my right. Even though there's only 20 deer left, I can still go hunt them and kill them. Yeah, wouldn't there, there, there wouldn't be no seasons. There would be no limits. You know, it's my right. You know, yeah. and that's not that's not true. That's a fallacy. Yeah. It, does it does it basically secure wildlife management decisions at the commission level? Yes. Yeah. Yes. There's great. a lot of stuff between Oregon and what you guys are doing in Montana. These these are the things I think we need to implement in every real state. And then yeah, you're Montana, absolutely right, John. <laughs> You know, working on both Oregon and, and Montana's right to hunt uh, constitutional amendments, there there's a kindred spirit there where it goes beyond uh, just wanting to to go out and hunt or to go out and fish. It's about providing for yourself in a way that with the supply chains being interrupted by COVID, with people wanting to be self-sufficient, with having access to high quality food that's free of you know, whatever hormone, GMO, whatever's out there, there, there's things like that where we we have a lot of people who aren't necessarily uh, your stereotypical hunter, but they want to have access to that. And they don't want to have to worry about that. And then you roll into the fold uh, hunt, uh, gatherers and foragers. So you're talking about wild greens. You're talking about mushrooms, uh, people harvesting oysters and mussels. I mean, so there's this huge umbrella that really encompasses far more people than we really realize because we kind of get tunnel focused on, I just want to be able to hunt my deer every fall. Right. But there's so much more that's there. And we have 23 States currently with a right to hunt uh, constitutional amendment. So that means we need what 27 more. And hopefully mm -hmm. we add Oregon to the, to the list and we, we reemphasize Montana's, but I think this is something that really needs to be brought to the attention of sportsmen across the nation. Cause if you don't have one, you have a risk of losing what you have. And it's a real risk. All you got to do is ask people in Washington with spring bear and New Mexico with public land trapping that can this be eroded piece by piece? It absolutely can. And we know the, the, the game book for anti-hunting organizations is, is to do this and dismantle piece by piece, what we, we cherish. So for me, it was it was really gratifying to be able to write these actions and be a part of this. Uh, I haven't hunted Oregon yet, Amy. Maybe someday we can make that happen. Uh, I, I really want to chase antelopes, and so Oregon's on my list there too. But uh, I want to make sure that if I'm ever able to draw that tag, that that's still there. And, and so being a part of this, even though we're over here in Montana fighting the same fight, uh, I, I think that I think it was a great thing. I think people need to be more aware of it, even if you're not from Montana or Oregon.
Well, that that's the point we're trying to get across to everybody that we talk to, is that you don't have to necessarily be from Oregon or Montana or Arizona or California or whatever or Canada or any of this. Like this is all this is what we all need to get involved in. We're all part of the same the same thing. I feel like I'm on like a broken record, just constantly saying the same thing and saying the same thing. And I'm sure I'll be saying it for 20 years before it really catches on. Um, but I think this particular, especially the way that you guys are presenting it in, in Oregon, uh, is a beautiful way for us to, to solidly put some foundation down that will not be able to be torn down by the opposition. Um, and really once, hopefully we can get this to pass through there, um, we can kind of replicate that in the other, however many states you said it was, 20, I don't know, how many did you say it was last, 27? 27 left. Yeah, so. Um, one quick fact, and I know Tennessee has their right to hunt, and they got more votes for that than their governor did. So they really liked it in that state. Um, well, on that note, if I could, Charles, real quick. Yeah. Uh, the sponsor of the bill, uh, Representative Fielder, um, called us and told us to please, whatever we were doing, to clog up his email, to stop it. Um, the the howl really worked. I think uh, our politicians <laughs> got over 30,000 emails uh, in just a matter of a week or two. So... Uh, Good job. We had that. That was a big one. That was a big one. Yeah, that's that's good. Yeah. So Fielder, the author, I was like, well, he needs to read them too. So (laughs) (laughs) it should make him happy. He said, "Put on the brakes. Send it to people that I don't have signed as co-sponsors." I took his name off eventually, but um, staying on Montana. um, Montana had a management plan for its grizzly bear population it's recovered grizzly bear population and it was a very robust and responsible management plan that had alternative b in it um and a but alternative b included hunting in it now i want to make a a point here every headline that i've seen in the last two days is basically you're going to be able to hunt grizzly bears in Montana or, you know, hunting might continue, hunting of grizzly bears might continue in Montana. And I, it's such a small portion portion of this management plan and what would happen if they were delisted. But I think whoever was writing these is kind of leading people to the emotional side of, Oh my God, we're just going to be out there killing grizzly bears all over the place. And it's not the truth to me. It's, it's more of we should celebrate that grizzly bear have recovered. And this might be my opinion. Let me know. I think the state officials of Montana have already had a lot to do with managing grizzly bears. So they know what they're doing. And it's about Montanans being able to manage their own wildlife for what's best for Montanans. And, and, what are what's what's Wyoming? What do you when you say when you're from Wyoming? What do you say? Wyomans? I don't even know what you say. What I is don't it? know either. Cowboys. 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 Uh, they're included in this as well. And um 
so there was a lot of there was an open comment period and we got a lot of people to submit comments along with i'm sure other organizations as well and um the fish and wildlife service is going to now consider delisting grizzly well, yeah, That's, if, if, you take over from there yeah if i could just jump in there, there there's a couple things here and i'll just kind of say it how the governor said it to us when we met with him was uh delisting the grizzly bear is a long game and it's three yards at a time and and that's exactly what has been going on i, th I think a few years ago when i looked at our our group and said okay we really focused on wolves but now we need to focus on grizzly bears and getting them delisted i think everybody in there thought oh, that's never going to happen and 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 it hasn't but we made huge inroads and steps towards being delisted I mean, it's actually being talked about now in D.C. Um, so the plan that was on Howell was the, the grizzly bear draft plan from the Fish, Wildlife and Parks Agency in Montana. And and really the plans that they had two plans prior to this and it needed to be updated. And that's all part of the long game is getting that plan updated for delisting. Now, it, when you read it, uh, it said, now this is not a delisting plan, but it's a piece of the puzzle to delist. And if that plan wasn't updated, that would be the first thing the service would come back and say, oh, your plan is antiquated. You haven't addressed this and you haven't addressed this. And that would give them reason to deny the petition to delist. Um, so every little thing, um, whether it was in the GYE decisions on the greater Yellowstone when it had, was delisted twice, we listened to what the judges had to say. We listened to what everybody had to say, the service had to say, and we address, we're addressing those issues one at a time to make sure that they're done. And um, even through this legislative session, we've had Senate Bill 85, which was Mike Lang's bill uh, to maintain a sustainable level of grizzly bears so as to they wouldn't be delisted again. And that was passed. Um, and then uh, Senator Butch Gillespie had a bill last session that kind of made the service nervous. And it was kind of a self-protection bill uh, with grizzly bears. But there was some language in there that said, if it looked like a grizzly bear was going to attack your livestock, you could shoot it. And um, that made him nervous. And then understandably, I could see why. So we took the same language that, well, what's going to happen is the same language that was when the wolf was still listed they're going to incorporate that into that statute um and that'll make that made the service happy with the wolf so it'll make them happy with the grizzly bear so it isn't so vague on when you can shoot a grizzly bear but uh even just today uh the university of montana released a, a poll that they took um and no, no doubt 90% of the people that took the poll said that grizzly bears should remain on the landscape and they're a valuable piece of Montana. And I agree with that as a hunter. Um, but the surprising part of their poll was over 80% of the people that responded to this poll thought that hunting grizzly bears in some shape or fashion should take place. And that had to be earth shattering at a liberal university like the University of Montana to see that. Um, so people are made, they're making their voices heard, uh, 
the grizzly bear delisting thing is just, like I said, it's a, a yard at a time. I sent letters today to a uh, senator and a representative um, in DC. Uh, there's supposedly going to be a natural resources hearing in March in DC on delisting. So that just shatters the anti-hunters narrative. I mean, just it completely because because they don't believe that two things can equal can can coexist in the universe. They don't believe that hunters can also treasure the same wildlife they hunt. And and that I mean, if that's the source and the, maybe the simplicity of that poll might validate a lot that we can. I mean, just swap out the words wolves. Um, yeah, just all of you know, black bears, great white sharks. <laughs> you know, it's like it just completely destroys their narrative. Um, that's awesome. You know, Mike, what you're talking about there with the the hunter's paradox, loving what you kill, and and then you know, how can you do that is a question that that I get uh, almost all the time from talking with non-hunters, right? And I mm -hmm. think it's something that really important for hunters to have an answer to, whether that's for food or management or, you know, sport therapy, whatever it might be for you, it's really yeah. important that you, you consider that, right? And and when we have an answer, well, it just, it, it silences the other side because it's, it's we're no longer the Elmer Fudge shooting everything that we see. Right. We're thoughtful, considerate of, of what we're doing. Yeah. No, it, it completely changes it. The hunter's paradox is, is the fact that uh, we as hunters have a really hard time putting into words. So that's kind of why we fail. We kind of, we could tell them why we hunt. We could tell them, you know, why that we love animals, but we can't, we can't show that emotion with words. It's kind of hard. It's I, I've been trying, honestly, I've been trying for two years to write an article on it for my blog. The, the, and it's, it's, you know, it, I have it titled The Hunter's Paradox, and I can't seem to put into words what it is that I experience and why I could say I love this deer right here and I can look at this deer and I can, but I, I could also say I want to shoot this deer and I want to eat this deer. And, you know, it's like, I don't know how to put it into words and hopefully... I will get that on paper and maybe it'd be something we can use in the future. I would encourage you to read Aldo Leopold. <laughs> I actually have read yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Read that again. When when I got my degree, I, I studied him and I I uh I, I read several of his of his things. You know, I'll I'll put it. I would posit though that it's not just the hunter's paradox. And that comes from somebody who who just recently, within the year, became a hunter. Mm -hmm. That's a farm kid's paradox. And it, and that as somebody who was raised around livestock and grew up in 4-H and FFA and had market steers, that is one of the things that I think people like the folks who are behind IP3 don't understand is that dichotomy between you can raise this animal and care for this animal. And mm -hmm. if anybody, if any of you have had that kind of relationship, you know, as far as raising livestock in that situation, um, and still know that that animal is going to feed your family. Um, and, and that that is something, like you said, it's very hard to explain to people who have not experienced it. I feel, I actually honestly feel bad for people who've not been able to have that experience, whether that's on a farm or hunting or, or in whatever form, but this, this false narrative that, you know, you can't care for an animal, respect an animal 
and still know that that animal is going to feed your family. Um, you know, this, you can't be in nature and still eat idea. Um, it, it's just utterly ridiculous, but it, it, it does take a lot of thoughtfulness to have an answer um, for that, whether you're talking about livestock or whether you're talking about wildlife. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of people who obviously they don't hunt, but they really love meat. They really love eating meat, but they're not involved in that process of either butchering it or killing it or whatever. And I probably most people wouldn't want to see the cow butchered. that they're eating get butchered or whatever. And that's fine. But we're a part of that process, you know, from in the wild. It's 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 pretty wonderful what we get to do. Um, it's hard to put it into words, and I don't know if it's there's ever one thing that's going to explain it because everybody comes from a different angle and everybody has a different mm. story on, on also why they hunt. And that's also the beauty of it is we all sort of do it for different reasons or we have different motivations or somebody might be a level 10 here and I'm a level four here with that, but I'm a level 10 here on why, you know, we have different reasons we want to do it. It's just like anything. It's like anything we take part in. Um, and did, I wanted to. Did I hang on? Did I sidetrack by focusing on what the survey was, or the you know the results of that survey? Did I sidetrack where where we were going with with uh, grizzly bears? Like, what's the next action there? How do we how do we stay engaged and stay well, involved on that? Right now, the uh, the the fish and wild. What had happened was Wyoming and Montana and Idaho had filed. The governors had filed petitions to have the bears delisted, and that was over a year ago. There was no mm -hmm. response by the service. And uh, just recently, the service came out and, and made a ruling, I guess, so to speak. Uh, Idaho, their uh, petition was basically denied at this particular time. But Montana and Wyoming's petitions have moved to the next step, I guess. And it's called okay. Compre Comprehensive Status Review. And uh, <laughs> that, that'll take about a year. Um, but what they're saying, at least right now, is that we have uh, substantiated good probable cause, so to speak, to have the bear delisted. And uh, so they'll be gathering uh, comments um, right now. The public can comment on grizzly bear delisting. And they'll be talking, you know, to the biologists to look at numbers and all that. But as far as population goes, we're recovered. Um, and we have been for several years, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so it's, it's always that judicial review that hap happens at, at the end of delisting. We delisted the GYE twice. And then you have a judge that sits in Missoula, Montana, that says he uses terms like balkanization and uh, connectivity and says, well, you know, there's not enough genetic sharing, so I'm not going to let this happen. And uh, it's frustrating as hell. Uh, I'd like to see a legislator um, change the ESA that made it mm -hmm. made it so that once an, an animal was delisted scientifically, it couldn't be challenged uh, in the courts. And hopefully that's going to happen. Well, we'll be um, I'll be talking to you about what we can do for a, for another action on this. And I, I want to restate when I was saying the headlines are all about hunts. They are. But. Jess Johnson messaged me earlier because I had posted just an AP news article. And, and this one said, U.S. may lift protections for Yellowstone Glacier Grizzlies. She said, I hate this title. Removing Grizzlies off the ESA does not lift protections. 
It changes management authority. There are a ton of protections at the state level of management, and the Mm -hmm. plans are thoroughly vetted and accepted by the feds for the delisting to happen. Sigh. I hate misleading headlines. Mm -hmm. And she said he loves what we do. No grizzly bear (laughs) will ever be shot in Yellowstone Park or Glacier Park. And Mm -hmm. uh, prior to me retiring, I was a game warden for the state of Montana. I was the captain in Missoula. I supervised the western part of Montana. And uh, I'll tell you what, there were two federal agents in the state of Montana, and one of them was here because of grizzly bears. But we did the yeoman show of wor- share of work on poaching of grizzly bears or investigating grizzly bear attacks. Um, so, and that's kind of how it works right now with the biology, the biology end of things. Um, we have plenty of FTE with the state wildlife agency that are trapping grizzly bears, moving grizzly bears, collaring grizzly bears. Uh, we're doing most of the work now, um, but we get told what we can do with a bear, where it can be relocated, what we can do with it and uh, what have you. So state management isn't really gonna change much. It, it'll make it more streamlined, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. So I'll leave it alone, <laughs> sorry. Uh, I just want to say thanks, everybody. I, I actually have to bow out, but I wanted to thank you all for coming on and uh, and having this conversation. And uh, thank you for allowing me to have my couple moments to talk there. So we'll talk to you guys soon. Awesome. Talk to you soon, John. All right. Um, now across, across a big border, sort of bigger than a state state line, <laughs> let's get up to Canada. So, Mark, uh, what what happened there? What's going on in Canada? I was I was on a plane to Utah, and somebody sent me a message that the amendments were struck down or something. I was like, wow! And I think it was either just after or right before I'd heard about you know this this Montana management plan and Feds considering it, sort of you know kind of a thing. So it was a it was an exciting plane trip for me. There was a lot mm-hmm. going on, but most of it was about Canada. I was kind of surprised, but tell us what happened. Um, so there, there is a bill um, currently, uh, it's not passed yet, called Bill C-21, which was originally introduced uh, as the handgun bill. <clears throat> came into force last October. Parts of it came into force last October, which uh, prohibited the sale trans- transfer uh, an importation of handguns in the country. So the bill was called the handgun bill and that had support across all the parties because it was getting handguns off the streets, uh, and making communities safer. Then in November, uh, two amendments to that bill, uh, caught everybody off guard and they were tabled, um, two, two amendments, which basically, listed a whole bunch of semi-automatic shotguns and center fire rifles whose magazines could hold more than five rounds and they added them to a prohibition list so if the bill was passed the amendments are passed there was a whole bunch of long long guns that were going to get prohibited under this handgun bill quite a few of those firearms were firearms that hunters used And so that created 
all of the controversy, all of the debate, all of the campaigns, uh, First Nations became uh, very vocal across the country saying that a number of those firearms were very popular in the Indigenous community with Indigenous hunters like the SKS. Uh, and so what happened was, you know, everybody was firing all of their, we had the campaign that was targeting federal MPs. So the federal government, the liberal government withdrew the two bills, G4 and G64, uh, which were the ones that were scooping all of those, those hunting firearms. Um, so that's, that's what that was. So that's, that's a victory in a way. Uh, yes, it is. So everybody, firearms owners in this country and in the United States that participated in it, voicing their concerns about coming up here to hunt and, you know, those, those sorts of things, uh, obviously had an impact. I recently just saw an analyst on TV saying that what he figured was, is that the federal government brought in those amendments, knowing that they were going to cause controversy because they did include hunting firearms, rifles, and shotguns as a way of setting up the leader of the opposition of the conservative party, knowing that, that they would fight against that, which would turn the Canadian public against the conservative party for basically advocating for gun rights. When people are saying we want less gun violence in the country and that backfired on the liberal government and basically Canadian citizens and, and Indigenous peoples unleashed on the federal government. And so they, they backed down from that. Uh, so, yeah, I think it was great that people across the country mobilized into some, a, a number of different campaigns were going on uh, nationally and provincially with uh, provincial, you know, wildlife hunting federations, as well as the Canadian Coalition for Firearms Rights, you know, everybody was was adding a piece to to this voice. It made a difference that I'm really proud of and that I'm really happy with. I do not think this is the end of it. Most people feel that is not the end of it. They are going to come back with some amendments in some way, shape or form that's going to continue to come after firearms, which they keep using this language as um, assault style weapons, firearms that are designed to kill the most amount of people in the quickest time. That's the language we keep hearing out of the federal government. Obviously that means semi-automatics with anywhere from, you know, three to five or more um, that can be held in magazines uh, or tube magazines, which were not included last time, but th they're obviously going to come back and take a rare at a whole bunch of probably semi-automatic type firearms as well. So I don't think this is the end of it, uh, but I do think this was a good, this was a good exercise for everybody because we're going to have to keep at it. Uh, it's a long game. We're going to have to keep at it. There is currently an initiative going on across the country through the Canadian Coalition of Firearms Rights to scrap bill c21 altogether mm -hmm. so the single biggest concern i guess that i have and that others have so there was another bill passed three years ago bill c71 and that's where they went after what they called these assault style weapons when the prime minister made the famous statement that nobody needs an ar-15 to bring down a deer 
we're getting these assault style weapons off the streets to make our community safer. They listed a number, a limited number of firearms that fell into the category, and it was simply based on the look of them. They were the modern looking AR type platform firearms. And there was just like a dozen or two dozen specific models, but then they developed this term called variant, a firearm variant of which they could take another make and model and go, well, that's a variant of the AR-15 because they have some similarities somehow, you know, and therefore it's prohibited as a variant. And that list under Bill C-71 is like up to 2,000 firearms of which now they're saying that the buyback and confiscation program could cost upwards around $7 billion um, to buy all of those and confiscate firearms back. So this idea of the variant still exists. It is still a threat to hunting firearms in this country because three years ago under Bill C-71, when they said they were only coming after these AR style assault style firearms, they brought in some traditional hunting firearms, like the Weatherby Mark V. Did we lose Mark? Mark, you're frozen. For a moment there, I thought he was talking about California. Yeah. Sounds, it sounds a lot like it. Um, Yeah, there was even a, what was the goalie's name? I think there was a goalie that spoke out and kind of messaged, messaged Justin Trudeau. Like, hey, listen, your bill here. I'm a, I think he was a waterfowl hunter. Um, he uh, he came out in opposition to it, and I know that caused a lot of. I think positively, it got it got people involved um, in what was really going on with this bill because he pointed it out. He said, "Hey, your bill here. This is a shotgun to use for waterfowl hunting, for duck hunting, or whatnot, mm-hmm. and and you're um, you're going to ban this. You're going to make me a a criminal, you know, for this." Right. Um, that was a, I hope to have Mark get back on here in a second, but, um, I just got to point was, out that wasn't any, just any goalie that, that was Carrie yeah. Price, Carrie Price. It was <laughs> Carrie. I couldn't remember his name. Yeah. Some goalie, some hockey I mean, player. Just a random guy. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't remember his name. Okay. And then who does he play for? Is it the Canadians? He, he has played. Yes. He was with the Canadians, the the Montreal Canadians that, okay. Yeah. The Habs. Yep. Okay. So, you know, you know that, um, but anyway, I know Mark was going to get really in depth here, but for our purposes, we were reached out to, because this was sort of an emergency amendment that came up, came about, I think at the 11th hour, and it was really going to affect hunters and 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 first nations and and you know any type of sportsman that that had these weapons and it was also going to affect our ability as um united states citizens when we come to canada and hunt so there was a lot of uncertainty of oh what kind of gun can i bring you know and what is this going to do to you know the outfitting businesses and you know the guides when we go you know they're worried about their economy. So uh, Canadians certainly got involved and also United States citizens got involved from the perspective of, hey, we go there and hunt in Canada. 
And this is going to affect, you know, X amount of dollars in, you know, in this little town that I go to that relies on, on hunting dollars. And this could have a big effect on that. So um, as Mark said, this is certainly not over with C21 as a whole, in my opinion, is not a good bill. And there would, there will be more coming. Um, but it was good to get these amendments taken off. It was good to get the the back and forth with uh, with members of parliament to United States citizens. It was it was interesting, you know. Some mm-hmm. of them asked, "Hey, where are you from? Are you are you in our are you in our province?" No, but you know, I either hunt in Canada or I want to hunt in Canada, and let me express my concerns in. Some of them actually listened. Actually, there's there's quite a few people who forwarded those messages to me. Um, that uh, oh, he's coming back in. Hold on, Mark's so much of a better speaker than I am. So we gotta let him get in there. Uh, but anyway, that interaction was was great. I think we had forty nine thousand emails. Um, that would that was sent to them i think it was somewhere around there mark i was i was filling in i talked yeah, about does, some does hockey lost player connection i talked about some hockey player i couldn't remember his name carry price. price yeah goaltender for the montreal canadians yeah he kind of yeah. kicked off the the national pressure on the prime minister over the yeah. amendments yep yep i was i was getting to that but I, I don't know if you remember where you were uh where you left off but uh yeah, awesome. I was just I was just sort of highlighting the point of a major concern that still exists in Canada with the firearm legislation is this idea of a variant because they already have prohibited standard hunting firearms. So at any point in the future, under the auspices of this idea of a variant, which has no legal definition, they're just using it. Uh, other firearms that are used by hunters uh, or farmers, trappers could be classified as a variant and added to a prohibited list. Apparently, one of the big concerns is is if the bill passes, the RCMP actually would have the jurisdiction to list a variant of a firearm to become a prohibited firearm. So that concerns people that um, that process could actually happen and never go through public debate, just an annual or biannual publication of lists and add variants to it so the battle's not up with there'll be more no it's not it's not so just to kind of sum it up what um folks can do um this is now i think very specific to canadians reach out to your mp in any way shape or form whether it's a meeting whether it's a phone call and ask them to not support bill c21 in its entirety there you go. And that's it. Yeah. Um, any other questions on that anybody has for, for Mark or anything or are we good? I just think it's interesting that you dipped your toe into the gun control issues, Charles. Yeah. Well, it has, uh, there's man. You've been, you've been resisting. <laughs> it's a big world. Yeah. The, the 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 call for advocacy in that um because it's such yeah. a it's such a hot mess <laughs> but it's a, I think... it's a 
it's a big world. And honestly, we need to have people that if we're going to do this, we need to have people that are just focused on, on firearms issues. Yeah. No, Um, I know it's, 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 there's entire organizations that do that. (laughs) Yeah, there are. And some of of them just yesterday have reached out to us to help, which is interesting. Right. Um, Which is cool. It's just, man, it's a wild world. Um, We're already dealing with enough. So updates that are coming. What is the date? It's it's February 7th. Is this Tuesday? Yeah, it's Tuesday. I don't know. Um, Sunday hunting in Pennsylvania. That'll be a new action that's coming soon. Um, we do have Hal for Wildlife Coffee, which is pretty sweet, coming from Bear Beans Coffee, which is actually based in Canada. Mm-hmm. They basically made a specific type of uh, kind of backpacking coffee that's branded Hal for Wildlife. They're giving all of the proceeds to Hal for Wildlife. Just an app. Guy just sent me an email and he's like, "Hey, do you, would you mind if I did this?" I'm like, nope, wouldn't mind that at all. Um, so you can get that. You can go to howforwildlife.com, go to our shop. You can you can get that um, amongst other things to help support us. Of course, we have memberships, which are pretty sweet because you get some great deals. Um, like with Go Hunt, or if you want a Pope and Young membership and a Howl membership, you can get that for basically half the price. Um, that's all I got. That's this week's, that's what's happened in the last week, basically. So there's a lot going on. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, John Colazar. He had to leave earlier. Uh, thank you, Mark Hall. Thank you, Jeff Dara. Did I say your last name right? Dara or Dara? Uh, it's Dara. Jeff Dara. Yep. I pronounce my A's. I go by just about anything. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Amy Patrick, for all of your work. I'm sure we'll be speaking soon. John Stallone had to leave. Thank you. Thank Mike Costello. And... Thank you to Everett Headley, who also had the get out. And that's it. I'll talk to you guys next time. See ya. Thank you.